there's nothing I wouldn't uh, write about. There are things that make me uncomfortable to write about. And um, I, I, in fact, have shelved some ideas for long pieces because I didn't want to live with the subject matter for that long. I was really shocked when The Girl Next Door was made because I didn't think anybody was going to want to do that. In fact, Stephen King at one point said, um, uh, there's, uh, they say there's only three things that are, are uh, certain, uh, death and taxes, or two, I guess it is, two death and taxes. And he said the other is that, that uh, Disney Pictures is not going to make a movie of The Girl Next Door. Of course, Disney didn't, but that it got made at all and as well made as it did was sort of surprising. Violence catches me because it's all around. and, and uh, it's a good counterpoint to the tender stuff. Um, if, you, if you can start by horrifying someone, you can easily grab their attention for one thing, and, and then you can bring them along the path to sort of uh, uh, the better things that we do to one another, or for one another, um, to uh, loyalty, courage, love, things like that. When I write violence, I want violence to get right in your face. Uh, I want you to be able to almost feel it. I, one of the, the seminal movies for me was um, Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs and The Wild Bunch where you didn't miss a thing. So the ending of Bonnie and Clyde is similar. They were so striking because you actually felt something of the pain of the person who was being harmed in these films. That's, I think, the reason, the reason my stuff is considered so violent. Well, it's visceral. It's very visceral, and it wants to be that. I like each of the films for different reasons, and some more than others. I'm not going to go into which ones. But uh, I think that I've been very lucky in that in each case, each filmmaker has tried very hard to pay attention to the source material. They haven't run roughshod over it, for instance, the way Kubrick ran roughshod over uh, um, Stephen King's uh, The Shining and implied his logic on, on a perfectly fine novel. A woman wants a man between her legs, one little spot. You take out that spot, you know what happens? Welcome to Speak All Evil, the podcast you were warned about. I'm Trent here with Kevin and Dave. Hello. 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 Kevin is phoning in once again this week, this time, because you yourself have COVID. This is true. Wow, you're a good sport for being here. Thanks. Kevin is struggling, I can tell already, and I appreciate your pulling through this week. Um, it's the uh, the trilogy of filth rolling on here. Um, I presented a couple selections last week in Cat's absence, trying to talk about the worst, most disgusting, revolting movies that we can find before she gets back and restores some order to the show. I'm already kind of regretting it. Kevin, congratulations. Only took uh, two episodes before I was questioning this whole idea because oh. you... You came to the table with some stuff this week. Uh, where do you want to begin? Well, happy holidays. Obviously, it was a brilliant idea mm, for us to, um, to go idea. down this journey during the holiday season. I thought that, you know, I was probably going to have a hard time. And I think my original couple picks, one, they were a little bit maybe too related to each other in, in some way. Um, so I kept one and I threw out another and found something that I regret finding. So Me we, too. We, we all have regrets here. Dave's been texting <laughs> like openly. Like um, what I will say about the COVID 
is I couldn't have picked a better selection of movies these next couple weeks to not be able to taste or smell anything um, and just rely on my imagination purely. Hmm. So the first movie that I picked is from 2007. It's a movie called The Girl Next Door. It's directed by a really unknown director named Gregory M. Wilson, who's done very little. In fact, one of the only interesting things I could find about him was that movie Clown. He acted in it briefly as like oh. a teacher. Oh, okay. That was a good one. Uh, it's a screenplay by Daniel Ferens, but this is, of course, adapted from a 1989 Jack Ketchum novel. And we've talked about Jack Ketchum. We talked about Offspring in the Cannibal episode. Trent, I believe, we carried on the Patreon and talked about The Woman and perhaps Darlin. Yep. And uh, Jack passed away in 2018. R.I.P. Um, I never, I never realized this, but he also did the story for the XX segment, The Box, which is an uh, anthology that I think I want to say we bring up, but I'm pretty sure it's probably I bring it up because I love anthologies. Um, essentially, what you have is this is based on a true story, and this particular movie takes place in 1958. And you have Meg and Susan, who are two sisters. Susan is disabled, and their parents die in a car crash, and they are left with their aunt, Auntie Ruth. And less. What's that? Less. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Less. Yeah, yeah. Good call. Um. So it it all seems to start out okay, and then we just get this depraved treatment of Meg as we discover that Ruth has some serious issues, some, some self, some, uh, some body issues. She's letting all the local boys come over to hang out with her sons and she's plying them with beer and cigarettes. And as her jealousy of a growing Meg, uh, heightens just really, really horrible shit happens. Um, I'm surprised, I guess, that you guys were like as taken aback by this movie, and we can get into it a little bit later in the show, perhaps, but I found the true story that this is based on to actually be worse, and one of the things that really surprised me, and maybe sort of took the edge off a little bit, was Ketchum was so horrified by the real story that he refused to put certain parts in, and he changed a bunch. Uh, for me personally... As a dad, uh, thinking about, you know, what could happen to me and then what, you know, the care that my daughter could be placed into and the things that could happen. I would like to think in 2021 that something that happened in the mid late 1950s, you know, is sort of off the table or at least a lot harder to get away with nowadays. Um, this uh, depending on where you live, I'll, I'll, you know, I'm sure we're going to get get into that as well. Um, I found this to be. Really difficult to watch. Um, I found, I don't know, there's just so many points in this movie, like a typical horror movie where you're like doing the typical horror movie thing where you're like, here's where you get away. Here's where you tell somebody. Here's where things change. And it just doesn't. And knowing that this is essentially a true story, I think makes it uh, as impactful as it was for me. Uh, I don't want to say I like this movie. Um, but I, I do want to say that I think it, it was it was very effectively done and and very heartbreaking. Um, definitely doesn't have a great ending. I mean, just a disclaimer for we probably should have given a disclaimer last week. Like where these are not movies that we're watching because we necessarily like them 
or they make us feel good, and we're definitely not always recommending them. Uh, this is one I would say if you have a hard time watching real depictions of child abuse, just stay the hell away from it. Um, but it is it is uh, it, it is a very well done and, and effectively done movie. I, I think that, that you know that morally should cover everybody. Everyone should be uh, you know turned off from child violence. <laughs> no, I love it. <laughs> but uh, you know. I did read about this, uh, about the true story, and I'm not going to get too much into the facts of that, but it, it is far worse. I agree with you. And part of uh, the depression that set in from the Trilogy of Terror is we've all tried to do our homework. Felt. Oh, yeah, the Trilogy of... Uh, that that was uh, That's the Treehouse of Terror I was thinking <laughs> of, The Simpsons. Um, so the trilogy of filth is is we've been researching. I would have much I would have much rather if we did a whole three weeks of those. I can't believe all the crying. Go ahead. Well, Dave. it's gotten a little bit. Go and, ahead. And the Dave. the thing is the research for the girl next door researching the real story. Uh, you know, was very very disturbing. But just going through to try to find the filthiest movies of all time. You end up just reading the synopsis, and you read four or five of these synopsis, <laughs> and that's already like you want to crawl into a hole. Like it's not a great, you know. They're not the topics of these and the subjects and whatever uh, are not pleasant things. But I thought the girl next door was done very well. Ruth, I thought was amazing. I thought her dialogue was amazing. Mm-hmm. I always love movies and series that are based on books because I feel like you know that the dialogue and a, a lot of that has been thought out. I thought all the kid actors did amazing in the movie. Um, really, really good. Like the little, it was, it's like a Stand by Me kind of vibe. Yep. And but then it's just like so. Oh, did much. you catch the Stephen King quote? I did not. Uh, Stephen King actually had a quote on this that said, it's the first authentically shocking American film since Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. If you are easily disturbed, you should not watch this movie. If, on the other hand, you are prepared for a long look into hell, suburban style, The Girl Next Door will not disappoint. This is the dark side of the moon version of Stand By Me. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying. But I did think it was done well, although I... I think it could be, uh, I don't know. I, I think it's very much like an acting movie. There wasn't a lot of really graphic stuff, although like the content was graphic. But as far as like practical violence and all that, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of that. It was mostly just things that are being done that are very wrong. So the, this of the filthy ones is probably the less of the like less gory than than all of them but i like this movie uh for what it is uh it is wrong and it's filthy um but uh i thought it was done well what do you think trent uh i don't like this uh, i didn't think this is a good movie really at all um i think it's an interesting movie i don't think it's very well made um i think that it's misguided in the way that it's made not that the acting isn't good. I don't think the screenplay is very good. I don't know. This is a weird one. The the first time I watched it, I was like, what the hell is going on here? You got this like 
I would even go further than Stand By Me. It's like The Wonder Years or something. So, like, you're watching The Wonder Years, and then uh, all of a sudden, then you're watching, like, a whole bunch of sadism real quick, and then it's over. And uh, I think, you know, so I was like, this this is so weird, but sometimes I get more interested in things that I don't like, actually, and that holds true for the next movie we're going to talk about this week as well. Sometimes when I don't like something, I'm like, why is this so bad, or why... You know what? What am I not getting? What there must have been passion and talent involved in this, and I can see things that are that are good about it. And you know, this is something that people worked on. A lot of people tried to make good. I want to know more about it. So, you know, I, I have a soft spot for Jack Ketchum, even though I've never read any of his books because I love the movie Offspring, and I thought that there that turned into like an interesting uh, partnership with the filmmaker uh, Lucky McKee, um, who went on to make The Woman with Jack Ketchum and co-write a novel like that movie, the the sequel to Offspring, that movie was based on a book that Ketchum co-wrote with McGee, like with a screenplay in mind. So I watched this. I didn't really like it. I didn't really get it. I didn't think it was like particularly hard compared to um, like our average week. Like we're doing this, you know, trilogy of, of filth. But I don't know. I mean, I didn't think this was really like any more like hardcore than a lot of stuff that we see. But after I watched it, then I went and, and researched it a little bit, and I didn't realize that the the novel itself was based on a real case, like you say. Um, so then I was like, okay, this is what they're trying to do. This was actually something that happened. So I watched it again because I wanted to have that in mind. I thought this is a case where actually – if you do know a little bit about it beforehand, I think that it will make a little bit more sense. Like, I would have been less confused if I had known that it was based on a real uh, a real event. Um, but that said, I, I think that it was done wrong. I think that the real story about this is one of um, economic underclass and one of a much more, like, sort of like stereotypical like white trash nature and this movie tried to put it in the like revolutionary road like um american beauty kind of like middle upper urban thing or suburban thing i didn't think that worked coming of age yeah i didn't think that worked at all for this like this is not you know the 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 character of ruth less the woman who is um inflicting the abuse who takes in the kids like her character makes sense um, if you do a more realistic version. I would do a much different version of this movie. I think that this story is better served or would be better served with a grittier. Like there should have been like cigarette burns on the carpet. They should have been in a much um, less. Um, they, they should have been in a smaller home. This is an economic underclass story, and that's how that the original victim was overlooked. Not this wasn't in the middle of like Mayberry. That's not where this happened. Not that it can't happen and not that worse things don't happen in, in, in the middle of Mayberry. But I just thought that was weird. And when Ruth is giving all these like speeches, she's, I don't know, she seems like all educated. I don't know. It just was disjointed. I didn't understand why Meg is like 25 years old and in foster care in this. Why was the actress not at all looking like she would be in foster care? She seems like she's in her 20s. And then David, who is like, I guess, kind of the other protagonist who kind of, again, I guess is like 
helping, quote unquote, Meg, but what does he do? He does nothing. He does nothing heroic at any point in the entire movie does he do anything at all to help her. So I don't really understand his character at all. I don't know why she's thanking him. This kid did nothing. Uh, I don't know. I I thought it was kind of a mess, but I thought it was an interesting mess. And I did kind of enjoy looking into the the making of it. And I, I did watch it again and I got it a little bit more, but I just think that this should have been done differently. We had sort of a similar argument with Offspring and The Woman. I think you and I agreed on The Woman a lot more, even though the soundtrack is a bit of a disaster, and we talked about that. Oh, so bad. But I thought, like, I had the same problem with Offspring, and and I haven't read, you know, these books, but I, I, and I think we discussed this, like, Lucky, or uh, Jack Ketchum had, you know, has yet to find someone to properly adapt his films, which Stephen King has definitely, it's taken decades for, I mean, I guess it hasn't taken decades. There's just been decades and decades of very inconsistent adaptations of Stephen King novels. Um, and Ketchum, I think, has yet to find someone that nails it. I thought this one was closer. So a few things that you said, Trent, um, I think that one of the reasons that Meg is staying there, and I mean, we can talk for days the about actress how is they too old, was my point. cast actresses She's too old for actors role. for age. But it's her sister, Susan, who's disabled. Yeah, she and was so realistic. That's she, one of the reasons yeah. that she's staying there. And as far as like David, you know, being sort of the other protagonist, I mean, this is 1958. Uh, he doesn't know what the hell to do. Um, I, I think that some of the reasons maybe that the house wasn't presented like even more gross is they're kind of presenting this through the eyes of the children. And maybe that's the problem you have where like you and Dave both just sort of mentioned like this, like stand my stand by me vibe or something. I think they're trying to show you like the innocence of children and that they never in a million years think that something like this is going to happen to them. Uh, And I think that's still the case to this day. But if you wanted a more faithful version This is another one of those movies that Hollywood loves to do this, whether it's on purpose and people trying to get out ahead at the races or if it's pure coincidence, which I have a hard time believing. The same year, an American crime came out with Catherine Keener playing the role of the evil woman and Elliot Page playing the role of Meg. But this one is actually using the names of the people from the real story. And that one gets a little bit more, we're just going to follow what happened here. Why why would you not know in 1958 that somebody is being like bound up in a basement and tortured that you shouldn't say something? And I know that you can ask the same question about the actual case, but I just thought that trying to make a likable hero character out of mm. anyone who was involved in that character in this movie is David, like trying to make his character at all like a good guy. I mean, it opens with his like Ron Howard narration. Right. It was very, it's it. so I thought it weird. was very it. Uh, yeah. The yeah, way it starts. Yes. And also in the beginning, the guy who falls down in the street or he gets hit by a car. Or, like, yeah. Gets hit by a car. He play, That guy plays Hector Salamanca in Breaking Bad. The guy who's in yeah, the, the wheelchair and he does the ding, 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 ding thing with his wheelchair. But like, I feel yeah. like the Jack Ketchum movies 
all, even though they're all done by different people for the most part, they have like a cheapness it's to It's Budget them. King. And I, Budget, like, yeah. I like it because they have a cheapness, but they also go extreme in these parts, you know? Right. So you kind of expect that. And I think it like occupies this cheap little corner of horror that I like. And I didn't know the story, the true story, before I watched this movie. I just watched this movie randomly one day and i just thought it had a really unique like looming dread like just this like sickening dread the whole time and that i also think the other ketchum adaptations kind of have that same dirty grimy dread that yeah that's, that's what i liked about I, I offspring like yeah i was hoping that one of you guys would confuse this for the 2004 Film of the same name, starring uh, Alicia Cuthbert. No, I yeah, I I saw that, but there was no confusing. I I knew that that wasn't it. Um, to go back to David, the the totally misguided character that you had to put some sort of hero in here, even though he didn't do anything at all, and there's no hero in this case whatsoever. But he's having this like heart to heart with his dad, who owns the bar, the Eagles Nest Saloon, and they have this whole heart to heart about violence against women. And it's like the weirdest scene. It's so At bizarre. First you think he's gonna answer he flip flops right. so many times just with the advice that. he's giving. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, ah, oh, sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do. And he he's never like, hit a woman. Never hit a woman. <laughs> he never hit a woman. Yeah. And then exactly. he and then he's like, but sometimes it gets out of hand, and uh, I know how they can be the women. You know, I don't know. It was so weird. Like, I just misguided to me. Yeah, that's interesting where Dave's talking about how a novel should give you like a good framework for your script writing and your dialogue. Um, but we also have to remember, I, I mentioned Daniel Farron's adapted the book to a screenplay, but he also worked with a guy named Philip Nutman, who I couldn't find anything else on. But Daniel Farron's wrote the script for Halloween 6, The Haunting in Connecticut, and he's done like a bunch of like horror movies that we'll probably never talk about I, on this show. He's done a lot of trash. I noticed that he he has yeah. um he's written a lot of like true crime movies. Didn't he do like an OJ movie even at one point or he's done a bunch of like trashy kind of tabloid true crime stuff, which you know, I think this falls into. I really loved Ruth and this is like one of the only movies that I wish had uh sequels that were trashier than this. And maybe it was called Ruthless. You know, yeah, like that, Ruthless Ruth, and that's the franchise. And uh, she gets even, like, crazier, and somehow she's just always just, like... The, the, and the yeah. tagline could be, like, bad mother. The, the problem with Ruth in this, it, it, it relates to the whole, the larger problem to me with this movie, is that she's too evil. Like, she's like Cruella <laughs> DeVille or something. The, to me, this story, the story that, that happened here and that the book was based on and that we're trying to portray here, even though, you know, this is too too removed from the story, but um, this is like a story of like the banality of evil and, and people every day that they're under, they're under the radar. They're not seen. Nobody cares about them. Nobody's checking on them. And they're, they're lost in this world where it's just like, it's not seen as evil that there's a girl in the basement who hasn't eaten in a week and we go down there and kick her around and the drunk lady thinks it's funny and everybody's under the influence and, and everybody's just like lost any sort of purpose. But to me, like the, the idea that it's like this really coordinated in this movie 
it's just much more deliberate and she's giving all these speeches and like i just don't think that it works like that and that to me that that's not how evil in this type of situation really operates i just think that it's it's more casual like it what happened here was this bizarre casual evil and i don't think this movie portrayed that i think that the uh the way she was uh was right for the 19 like the 1950s are scary to me it's it's scary because of the way the justice systems worked and prejudices and biases and and the way the police were the way forensics were like it was scary in 1950s i feel like people could get away with doing shit that was fucked up especially in small towns i think that you're right about it not being like Edward Scissorhands, Stepford Wives neighborhood. It should be a little grimier. It should have been grimier. I yeah. did like how they kept closing up on like her smoking her cigarette her and beer. her mouth <laughs> and her always having the beer. Like, boys, you want a beer? And like um I don't know. I thought I thought Ruth was good. I just it she was so gross and I could just picture an old timey, like out of touch grandmother just being like Ugh. you know like yeah i don't think we i don't era. think we got enough enough backstory which i'm sure that we would have gotten in the book and then if you research the real story which the original victim by the way her name is sylvia likens l-i-k-e-n-s i don't think we got enough backstory as to why ruth is the way she is there's a couple like really quick not so great like dialogue sections where yeah. they're, I think they're trying to convey that, but they never really get it across. Not at all. She just seems like this like evil lady. She is just like a suit in real life, a super fucked up victim of like all kinds of other terrible stuff that happened before this, and and the cycle you know goes on. Well, she comes in hot yeah. with a hoochie coo like right off the I bat. Hoochie coo girls. She's like, oh, gonna go see the hoochie coo girls at the carnival, and then like guys want a beer like right away she was just inappropriate as hell yeah no i, I love the performance and that's uh like blanche baker uh who apparently like started blanche. acting very young and has a lot of like emmy award winning lots of work um i thought that she was great and again i'll go back to an american crime and i same year that came out Catherine Keener plays that character and if you go watch some of those scenes like she goes a lot harder like she is not just like casually smoking a butt and drinking a beer and egging the boys on she is like full on like part of the abuse and horrible do you guys remember when our local fair had the hoochie coochie tent no I don't you don't remember that no. Kevin do you we used to have, we have like a local fair in our area. It's very um, rural, small fair, but. I think vaguely I remember a tent I couldn't go in. That's the one. <laughs> it was out, it was like out kind of in the parking lot. There was a big parking area. And I remember very well this tent. It was all lit up and all you could hear was music and like dudes yelling. You could hear guys yelling and it seemed like a huge party. And I remember asking my mom like, what's the tent over there away from all the rest of the fair? And she was like, ah, that's, you know, uh, the beer tent or whatever. What but a time to be alive. That was the hoochie-coochie tent. <laughs> I think it's just the hoochie-coo. But hoochie what you do, hoochie-coochie, I believe, is a verb. <laughs> I think one of the more bizarre parts of this movie, and I'm guessing 
obviously from the book, is that it starts out with David, who is the boy that we keep talking about, that it, he presumably wants to help Meg and does everything wrong to, to actually help her. Does nothing. Is that you have, you start out with like an adult David, Dave talked about it, how you suddenly have Mark Margolis show up to be hit by a car. And he's not just like from Breaking Bad, Dave. Like this dude has been in like Scarface, Christmas Evil, uh, hundreds of movies. Uh, But you have adult David like lamenting on this time in his life when this happened. And I thought that having William Atherton play the adult David and you want him to be a sympathetic character was so interesting because whenever I see him on screen... I'm immediately like, you were the dick from Die Hard. You were the dick from Ghostbusters. You were the dick from Real Genius. And like, you're going to show up now in 2007 and want me to feel bad for anything you did in your life? Yeah, and then he gives, you know, at the end, so it's bookended by these like Ron Howard type folksy voiceovers. You're talking me out of it. You're really doing a good job. It's just the tone is all wrong. (laughs) It's just a wrong tone for this movie. But at the very end, the whole message... I, which I'm still like hashing over in my mind. He says, uh, quote, it's what you do last that counts. In life, it's what you do last. It's not what you do throughout your life. It's just the last thing that you did, which... And, and, and am I wrong in that that's what like Meg's last words were to him or something? Am I making that up right now? What's that? Am I wrong that, that those were Meg's last words to him? Oh, did she say that? It was hard to tell what she was saying to I, him. She's whispering I could be all making it stuff. up completely. I've been obviously a little bit off. Well, what what he did last wasn't even that great. I mean, yeah, he whatever. I I, I don't want to spoil too much, but I just thought it was a weird message to say it's what you do last that counts. That means just do whatever, and then when you're that's like atheist in a foxhole when you're on your deathbed, just uh, just try to do one good thing, and then. I don't know. It just was was too deep. Did you notice, Kevin, the uh, the red ants symbolism when when David is like and his buddies they're like feeding the worms to the red ants, trying to get them to fight. No, that scene. No. Did that scene stand out to you at all? No. Why? What am I missing? I don't. There's a dog fight here. I'm not sure what's happening, but everybody is. Uh, there are some dog wranglers and some handlers. There's some money being thrown around. We're we're in a troughs right now. The next movie, we're getting a little bit ahead of things. We have, we had to rent out the back of the basement here, and we're sharing it with the dog fights next door. <laughs> Sorry. Speaking of uh, filth, uh, anyway, there's a whole scene where the kids are like feeding these worms to the red ants, and the quote I think that you're supposed to come away with is, "The red ants always win," and that's supposed to say something about like. I guess the neighborhood kids that are all torturing her and joining in, they're the red ants and they overpower and they always win. I don't, again, to me, just clumsy, wrong tone stuff. Well, it's also hard well, when, when you watch these movies in this category, knowing it's supposedly one of the most disturbing movies, you know nothing, there's going to be no happy ending. So you watch the whole movie, you know, not that we have happy endings anyway, but you just know it's every you know, they're going to die and they're not going to get out of this and it's going to be the worst way out possible. You you talked about happy endings last week also and I can't, every time <laughs> well, we're watching these happy movies endings, and, and then you it, keep saying happy endings. Like, well, I guess I would take issue with that. I think there are one or two happy endings. 
<laughs> well, not those happy endings. I mean, like, you know, just there some sort of resolve at all, or that like one person gets away or something. The eternal fountain of Bill. All right, my second pick for this week is a Mexican horror movie directed by Lex Ortega, who not only wrote it with a buddy, Sergio Tello, he also stars in it, and it's 2015's Atroz, or Atrocious. And you can find this on Tubi right now, although I don't recommend that you do. Basically, you have a very short movie isn't this like 75 minutes i think it's 80 Um, 80 something it's quick which is uh merciful and basically you start off with a uh, a car crash scene where a detective is showing up on scene and these two guys have hit this poor woman in the street and killed her they're now in custody and this detective decides he's just gonna you know i'm gonna do a little searching around by myself and he finds a videotape or a video camera and he decides to watch this video camera while sitting in the front seat of the car that just hit this woman so uh evidence contamination right from the get-go and it starts sort of this i'll say interesting movie where it leads him down a path of sort of he wants to have justice on these guys and he wants to figure out based on what he saw on the first videotape, exactly what these guys have really been up to. And it leads you down this mix of found footage and traditional film where they do end up finding more tapes and you're led down this path of what's on the next tape and what's on the next tape. There's an interesting plot sequence where one of the tapes gives you a pretty hearty background on one of our two antagonists. And then it has a really terrible ending that we can get to and talk about. Um, But in terms of trilogy of filth, this is (laughs) easily the most depraved movie that I've ever seen. It, It makes last, you know, everyone talks about Salo. Everyone talks about Serbian film. Uh, even Trent, like one of your picks last week, like The King of Death, like that has a lot of social commentary in it, at least. And and it does tie into like the country where it's from. So I did try to look at Atroz the one time I made it through. Um, and I'm just wondering exactly how much uh, Mexican history Lex Ortega is trying to tie in here or if he's just trying to absolutely bludgeon you to death with some of the grossest practical effects that I think we've ever seen. Um, so yep. in terms of what we're set out to do in, in these next few weeks, huge win. Only one more. And, Only one more week, Kevin. I know it seems like eternity. Uh, in terms of uh, cinematic quality, it, it is an interestingly done film, like I said, like sort of using a bunch of different film styles, and they are edited together pretty well. Um, in terms of recommendations and movies that I would want to tell people to see, I would tell them never, ever watch this movie. Uh, I would agree. Kevin, I congratulate you 
And uh, I honor you this week. You came through with what I think is the worst thing that we've ever seen on the entire show. Um, this is worse than Solo, worse than Serbian, worse than Centipede 2. This is the filthiest, most disgusting, most reprehensible movie I think I've ever seen. Ladies and gentlemen. Wow. Just, I, know, I know this is a podcast and we can all see each other, but I want everyone to confirm I am not taking a bow. <laughs> I have a lot to say about this movie and Lex Ortega, who I now love. I did not enjoy watching this movie. I watched it twice. Unlike you, the picker, even the chooser himself could not take this movie more than one time. I did. I went two times. Um, and I watched I another too. Ortega movie, which I will talk about later. Um, but I would take issue with one thing, Kevin. You mentioned the Death King and Solo from last week as having more, I guess, more serious things to say and having a little bit of like heft underneath the um, the, the well, gore. Well, I mean, you're, you're making it sound a lot more eloquent than what I really intended. Well, I, I would say this. I think that the point of this movie is this movie is about cultural homophobia, number one. This movie is about the legacy of a family abuse, number two. And I think that this, you know, if you can get beyond, which it was hard for me, no doubt, I do not recommend that anyone watch this movie. It is on Tubi. I watched it on effedupmovies.com because they have the full uncut. I don't want commercials. I can't be watching like a snuff movie and be watching commercials at the same time. Oh, it's I, weird. I cannot do it. I, I So I watched it on effedupmovies. You don't, you don't want like your progressive car insurance yeah, like right now. Nah, can't, like, can't, can't, can't do it. Cut off. So you can watch this uncut. I'm not saying that you should. In fact, I would say don't watch this movie. But if you do, I actually think this movie has a lot of of things to say. And we haven't talked about a ton of Mexican movies. We talked about Tigers Are Not Afraid. Um, but it's interesting that this is billed as the most violent Mexican horror movie ever made. I think it certainly stands up to that. And I think it stands up to... Just oh my god! Um, this is just over the top brutal. I mean, this is even for me. There's no comedy to this. The thing is, like a lot of the movies that we watch that are considered like really bad, you know, like Centipede and like Serbian, even Solo. I think there's so much black comedy. It's 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 like satire. It's supposed to be you know ridiculous, and so you're not really taking it that seriously. This movie is dead serious to me. So you're you're telling me that when you saw the giant dildo covered in barbed wire inside the anal canal, you did not laugh? Ten minutes. Ten minutes into this movie, I was like, oh my God. I don't I know. I texted you guys. I threw up. <laughs> I don't know that I can watch this movie. Ten minutes. That's it. And the rest of the ride is absolutely despicable. I, I'm uh, I'm ashamed to be talking about it in, in some sense, but uh, I, I do think that this movie actually is serious, and I'm really psyched that uh, I was introduced to Lex Ortega because I think 
that he should be a filmmaker to watch. There are so many people being given chances to make horror movies right now and being given shots to reach a broader audience. And I think Lex Ortega should be one from from what I've seen. Um, this is brutal. Dave, I mean, you, you've been like, you enjoyed this, I think. I think this was like fun for you well, or something. Every once in a while, a movie comes along that really touches your heart. With its dick. <laughs> or your breasts or your penis. Uh yeah, there's there's a part in this where uh he gouges out a part like right over the heart in the in the breast and then squirts lubricant on it and fucks it. That was very imaginative. Um and like one thing I was a little confused about is like how much I could see why he taped everything. I didn't necessarily see why his family taped everything when they were like abusing him and shaming him. Yeah, that was yeah. Uh, yeah. But again, uh, I think was that che- was so. I was confused about that too, and sorry to cut in. I think that was his sister. No, because at one point his dad tells his mom to take the camera. His dad was filming it. Right. Yeah. But anyway, uh, I was really into uh, watching things about like the Mexican cartels and stuff. And the Mexican cartel is some of the most imaginatively violent, like real shit on the face of the earth. They do really fucked up shit. Uh, And so like that made the grime of this a little bit more like it was actually kind of terrifying because I was like, what have these filmmakers seen or like, why, yeah. why would they go this far? It, like, it kinda, yeah, how kinda, could they go this far? You it know sets what I mean? the like, table at the beginning. It shows like a lot of like Mexican crime stats and like, right. it, it's kind of like talking about that at the beginning. Like I, I was saying, I'm, I'm always researching uh, this particular edge of horror and I've never seen this on any list. I've never seen this written about. Uh, no, nope, and I've researched a lot of disturbing, filthy movies. So, uh, good job finding this this gem of a filth <laughs> pig um, for us to watch because it really is like the, a movie that a lot of people aren't talking about, a lot of people don't know about, and that's why I love doing this podcast is for those moments Same. where you Same. can talk about something that uh, isn't you know, hereditary and it isn't Halloween or whatever that's been out there discussed by everybody. <laughs> oh God. This we have uh, it on right now. At the- yeah, we do. <laughs> no. I'm so glad I'm not there. Oh, it's the it's the part oh, my God. I guarantee this is the part where you puked Folks. last time. Folks. It it did it was like fourteen minutes in. Oh my God. Oh my God. The interesting thing to me, uh well one of many is that it looks like uh, Ortega made a 2012 short film that preceded him going forward yeah. to make yeah. the full length, and then he still only had a seven thousand dollar budget yeah to do this with, and like I I can't remember if it was Wiki or like IMDb or like one of the sites it had the box office listed at seventy four dollars. The whole thing about found footage is that it's a great thing to do with a low budget. Because you're presenting footage that is supposed to be amateurish. So that kind of lets you off the hook for a certain amount of production value. I feel like when you're you're presenting it as some weirdo, some sicko filmed this on his little video camera. So that gives you a lot of room to do stuff that automatically looks gritty. 
and it looks real because the way that you're filming it makes it look gritty and real. So right away, that kind of lends like a gravity and a believability to it. And that's what this movie is all about. This is the first feature by Ortega. As you said, Kevin, he had done at least one short before this. He's been a guy, I guess he's mostly a sound engineer uh, guy and he's done he's been involved in a lot of movies as uh, as a technical contributor um, and there isn't a lot of information out there I, I did love his movie uh, from last year and I want to talk about that at some point but I think the whole found footage thing really served this because it, it just it allowed him to do what we're talking about which is so gritty and so believable that you're just like oh my god I I don't think anyone should see this <laughs> and and interesting of him to act in it as well. Like I said, he's one of the two main antagonists, and he's he's really like the guy. Yeah. You know, by the time we get to you know film number three, uh, those are like the home videos that you guys were talking about, and that's like him as a teenager. And it it is interesting it, that you can poke holes in like why would you be filming this and who would be filming that and. But I think, like you said, trying to let you off the hook a lot. Um, and I think it certainly is a filmmaker. It let it let Ortega off the hook so that he could also be an actor in the movie because who fucking cares who's running the camera uh, or directing if you're literally just trying to get this like filth-covered version of Cloverfield. Like, no one's yeah. going to judge you for your cinematography. I didn't expect to see uh, shit-eating again this week. So soon. So soon. You have- Nor was I. I was active. I was actively trying to avoid yeah, that. Uh, however, however, as soon as I researched the girl next door real story, guess what part of that is? Uh, wasn't in the yeah. film, but I still got to read about it. And then, sure enough, the second pick. We're not even fifteen minutes in, and my guts are on the floor. Well, w- one way that this movie relates to the girl next door is that this movie contains a scene of bending uh, fingernails back as a form mm. of, of torture that that happened in the real case uh from the girl next door they didn't show that in the movie but if you read about it that happened and then in this movie it actually happens before your eyes but it's done by the police which i thought was one of the other interesting things about this movie is that it shows you these these scenes of torture and these awful things that the criminals are doing but as soon as the police have them in custody the police start doing the exact same thing to the suspects. The police are as brutal and savage as the people that they're interrogating. So it's just like a whole a, a flip-flop of the same exact techniques. Like you're like, oh my God, this is like terrible. Who would do this? And then they're in custody and law enforcement is doing the same thing to them. I thought that was maybe part of the statement here. I didn't like that as much. I thought... Um... For just $7,000, I thought it was interesting that they did get some of those. I mean, they were kind of cheap, but like the cinematic sections. The um, punching? I'd, the punching section where the fist was the camera? No, but, just like when they would, like what Trent was just talking about, when they would, you know, we get the opening scene with the car crash and you're introduced to like the lead detective. I believe they call him the, the Commandante. Yes. Um, and then that's like, traditional style cinema and then he finds the first you know the video camera where we see film one where it's the the trans sex worker and 
then it will cut back to the cinematic style where, like Trent was just saying, they're basically torturing our two suspects into being like, where did this murder occur? Are there more films and everything? And then you get them finding more films at the site of film one's murder. And we get back into the found footage thing. I thought that this, the <clears throat> the cinematic stuff, um, I thought that that soar, I didn't love that as much. And I, and, and I know we're not there yet. We've got a little bit of time, um, but I really hated the ending. So, oh, huh. All right. Well, I just want to point out this part we're looking at right now is a part where it looks as though like the camera is on like the forearm of a fist punching a face. And there's that scene, which is not really it's not the camcorder, although it's in the camcorder style. And then there's also which I brought up and I'm, I'd like to spoil this at some point because it's already spoiled rotten. Uh, is true, true. the I'm barbed saying don't wire? Watch it, so yeah, the barbed wire covered dildo <laughs> strap on inside the anal cavity. Like that's it's in camcorder footage, but it's like some colonoscopy kind of camera. I I've never seen that technique or that fist no. technique no. ever in a movie. No, nope. and I was kind of like, I I felt like they were kind of like. Doing some new stuff and stuff you, they haven't yep. seen in other movies, and they were being kind of creative, yep. like a lot of this. Uh, the cutting off of the face at one point. Oh, the peel, the face peel, the face peel oh, looks very God. real well, for seven thousand dollars. That, like in, uh, that Texas looks Chainsaw great. Too. Of course, that's got a huge budget compared to this. True, true. And this, all the practical effects in this movie, like they're making you wince. You're not like, oh, that's grape jelly and that's ketchup. You know what I mean? No, like it no. looks really good and it's it looks too good yeah so one of the things i'll give them credit for is what they do with all those practical effects is gross you out so much from things like poop face peeling you know mutilation but then with that last film particularly after what dave was just talking about with some barbed wire they gross you out so much more with the relationship between Goyo, who is played by Lex Ortega, I've mentioned, and his sister, Daniela. And all of that is some of the most non-graphic, disgusting stuff, and then it gets right back to the nasty, and you're like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? It's so bad. It's so disgusting. But but that's your... It's hard to talk about. Like, we have time, but... Um, uh, even the the uh, the scenes that aren't um, the film within a film, because again, found footage, film within a film. So a lot of times you're watching something that is that other people are watching, right? But even the stuff that isn't film within a film here is still shot very like cinema verite style. It's still like handheld and kind of jumbly. So that adds to me. That adds to the realism that everything is filmed that way, that it's all very like guerrilla style. It it really does. We talked about this with uh, Victoria. It kind of seems like you're there for most of this movie, whether it's the, you know, the snuff movie stuff that like the cop is watching and later showing to the perp um, or even the scenes, you know, outside of that, it still kind of gives to me, it gives a very like first person feel to the whole thing. So if you're going to make a movie like this, you get a 2000, you know, you get a 
this was $7,000, you get a $5,000 camera and you film all these scenes with the interrogation of the cops and all that stuff with that $5,000 camera and then you return the camera and then you take your camcorder and you do a whole bunch of fucked up shit by yourself with your friend or, or your friends or whatever. I also got the feeling that uh, sometimes you get the feeling it's an actor that's playing a stripper in a movie. I had the feeling that it was a stripper that decided to become an actress to play a totally. stripper in a totally. movie. Yeah. Yeah, that second film, I, I I never thought that anything could bug me as much as poop. Oh, um, so but bad. But that second film... So um, bad. Oh. Remind me? It's a certain, certain fetish involved. The second involved. tape is when he takes the stripper home. And oh, the plastic? Uh, yeah, rap. yeah, the... <laughs> well, the, no, but the first time he goes to the club and he's filming her and she tells him that she has a certain... Oh, right. Uh, her menstrual cycle. activity happening... And he's like, I it's okay will to talk you. about menstrual say, cycles. Yeah, whatever. Menstrual cycle. Yeah, she says that like she's still on her period, and he's like, that's okay. And then later on, I thought it was a great twist. Uh, he's mad that the period is over because he can't really do his thing unless there is like blood involved. Ugh, this movie he's, is a period piece. He's eating. <laughs> he's eating the menstrual blood. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. All there is like. All manner of the worst stuff, worse than Solo. This is the worst thing we've seen. The other thing, too, I don't, we ha- no one's brought it up yet, I don't think. Um, really interesting sound choices. So, not only did he go like really like abstract and like all over the place with some of his like film style, but there are really jarring uh, sound pieces in this that were clearly done post production. And I'm not talking like, ADR or like Foley's it's like he just threw in some of the most jarring and fucked up sounds in this movie uh, during certain scenes um, I don't know if you guys picked up on any of that or it affected the way that you sort of absorbed the film uh, no but I would say this uh, contains the worst castration scene mm. Of all the Very castrations well we've seen, yeah, this is the most uh, disgusting castration in an aftermath. The, the the texture uh, of the epididymis <laughs> is uh, stretchy, so and it's, it sad. seems very real. Uh, it's not trying to be like, I feel like they use the same skin when they do this prosthetic thing and they cut off the penis. Yeah, They use the same fake skin they use for like arms and stuff. We all know right. the no. foreskin is way different Much than that. Much different, and this really shows that. It does. Yeah. This is I'm probably the most realistic looking, not that I have seen a castration in real life, but if I had, it, I think it would be more like this than most of what we've seen. Yeah. The sawing of the, sawing <laughs> of the foreskin. Oh, my God. Yeah, oh, was... and the hole. Oh, the hole after. Oh, let's spoil it. Let's spoil it. Because no. to me, there's a certain climax of this movie that is, which makes it take the cake. There's some tapes that show him being abused while his mother looks on right. and doesn't do anything about it. I thought that shot was actually like a really cinematic shot when the camera was there. He was getting raped by his father. His father found out he's gay, and his solution to him being gay is, I'm going to fuck you in the ass. <laughs> To try to make you not gay, or because I'm so mad that you're gay, or some sort of really weird pent up shit. 
And then to get revenge, the climax, which I think of this movie, is where he makes his mother fuck his dad in the ass with a barbed wire dildo. And then it cuts and cuts back and his dad's penis has been cut off. They show that. They show that. Up close and very personal. But then his mother's breasts have been removed and, and put on his stapled father. stapled onto his father. It's very Ed Gein And the way. father's genitals are sewn onto the, the mother's vagina. Uh, and it's just uh, so creative. It really is. I mean, like, who would have thought of this sequence of events? This is insane. I feel like it's pretty groundbreaking for, like, this extreme horror. And I am going to check out way more... Mexican horror because of this movie and uh, just the the tone of it. It has a vibe that uh, is different than other stuff we watch. It has that vibe, but I also thought that the ending was really, really bad. I thought the ending is where Ortega lost like some of the authenticity and went a little bit to American horror. I actually and thought the, it was very Telemundo. I don't know. The ending to me like got very saw. Like the way it was yeah. filmed, yeah. The music, yep. definitely. Like the the, yeah. the film score, like all of it. I was like, uh, I didn't really need this twist ending. Like I actually could have uh, just used. I liked if it. If you've hit, hit hit me over the head this much, I liked like it. Just just give me another like gut punch or whatever. Like don't try to give me like a a lame. Saw. I mean, again, I'll I give wrote me down, a sequel like, that had way too much of a saw ending to it. I kind of liked the ending because I thought that of all the most terrible stuff that you watch in this movie there is kind of there's a scene uh, toward the end between uh, goyo and his sister um that is uh, uh it's a lot it's i i thought that it was a, a powerful scene and then you know that is called back at the very end i i do think that's a good point it was kind of like saw like kind of like 90s american horror but um you know i i thought that that to me that showed like some uh some ambition and as much as i was kind of like i don't know i i wasn't really i'm not proud uh, that we watched this movie i am and and i was i was like really disturbed by it much more than any of the other movies that we've talked about but i i thought that it was so well done that i looked into lex ortega he made a movie last year called animales humanos or human animals and that can only be found right now on this like mexican streaming site it's called um petata pantaya Pantaya. Yeah, so if you go to this site, it's called Pantaya. It's totally legit. It's not like effed up movies. It's like a, you know, a Mexican uh, Netflix. Um, you can do the free trial on Pantaya and see this movie called Human Animals or Animales Humanos, and that's just from last year. And I thought that the growth from from um, Atroz or Atrocious to this movie was so strong. I thought that um, Human Animals could be with very few changes, maybe like a little soundtrack change, a little like score change, and maybe like one or two edits. I thought that human animals could be shown in American indie theaters as 
a foreign language horror movie or thriller movie and be like a hit. I thought it was the sellout that you thought Girl Next Door was. You thought it was a sellout? It had like it was like an American like law abiding citizen. Uh, what's a movie like Samuel L. Jackson lives next door and he's a cop and Lake he's Terrace. Like, yeah, it was yeah, the, it was the crazy neighbor. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was yeah. a crazy neighbor movie. Yeah, yeah. I haven't watched it, but uh, oh, you you didn't see that yet? I watched it. I no, but it. it has ties. It sounded to me like it could have like maybe loose ties to another Jack Ketchum novel and movie. Red. You have yes, exactly. Yeah, it's all about the pet. It's about, like, <laughs> pets and kids. It's so good. Oh, you have to watch that, Kevin. You have to see human animals. I, I want to do, uh, do a vegan episode where we talk about human animals and something else. If there's any vegan horror movies out there, we get to find them. Well, anyway, point being, regardless of, like, how... This movie was so disturbing, but it was so well done that... Um, I, I actually am a big fan now of Lex Ortega, and I think of all the people that get shots at making movies of all the opportunities now especially with streaming all of the money and in all of the resources that are being thrown at horror filmmakers right now somebody should throw something at lex ortega give him an opportunity because from what i've seen from the grime of uh of atroz atroz to what you call the sellout of human animals. I just see like an an amazing progression of filmmaking. And I think that if given the right circumstance, I think that Ortega could make a well-received movie for American markets. All right, everybody. I'm sorry. You're done. Great job this week. Great picks this week. Uh, Atroz is one for the, the books. I mean, it's (laughs) don't watch it. Don't watch it. (laughs) Go to Pantea.com and watch Animales Humanos.